Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, it's John here. We recorded this episode of Checks and Balance on Thursday afternoon, and since then, we've all heard the news that Queen Elizabeth II has passed away. It's obviously a very sad time for the UK and a sad time for us here at The Economist. President Biden and the First Lady have released a statement in tribute to Queen Elizabeth II, saying she was more than a monarch, she defined an era. And that's true, she met 13 of the past 14 presidents, and it won't be the same without her. You can listen to a special episode of our sister podcast, The Intelligence, which looks back at the life of the Queen and asks what's next for the monarchy and for the country. And now, here's this week's Checks and Balance. A small red coffee machine is ceremonially thrown into a dumpster. A man in check pyjama bottoms and pool sliders takes a hammer to another, smashing it into smithereens on his kitchen floor. In a convenience store, a post-it is attached to one. K-cups are for dumb liberals, it reads. You can find all of these angry missives under the Boycott Keurig hashtag on Twitter. Keurig coffee machines and the small K-cup pods used in them are found in approximately 25 million homes and offices in America. Most of the posts date from December 2017, when Keurig, along with four other companies, pulled adverts from Sean Hannity's Fox News show following comments he had made about the then-Republican Senate candidate Roy Moore. The host had suggested that some of the accusations of improper sexual conduct made against Moore could be false. Hannity's right-wing fans were furious at Keurig for pulling their ads, seeing it as the move of woke liberal snowflakes. It's an example of a growing trend, how a business can easily provoke the ire of the Trump wing of the Republican Party, and of how corporate America can no longer rely on unalloyed support from the GOP. I'm John Prideau, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, why is the Republican Party falling out of love with big business? The close relationship between the GOP and the corporate world has shaped American capitalism for decades. Businesses are used to disdain from Democrats, but vitriol from the right is newer. This has been on display in public brawls between lawmakers and companies, and in shifting orthodoxies in the Republican Party's economic philosophy. What will be the impact of the party's growing suspicion of America, Inc.?
With me to discuss the Republican Party's changing relationship with big business are Charlotte Howard and Alexandra Switchbass. Charlotte, Alexandra, I'm afraid it's a bit noisy where I am. I'm out on a reporting trip, so the sound quality won't be quite up to its usual standards. But I hope that this reporting trip will yield some interesting stuff for the podcast in a couple of weeks' time. How are you both doing? Alexandra, what's up in Texas? Uh, everything's going well. I've been having fun hearing from readers uh, with very strong opinions about the disunited States of America, the package last week, both listeners of the podcast and then also readers. So that's probably been the highlight of my week. Well, it's great to have you back on the podcast. You're clearly so keen to participate in the quiz again that you couldn't wait to, to come back. I'm hoping to continue my winning streak. I'm sure I will facilitate that, Alexandra. I look forward <laughs> to it at the end of the pod. Charlotte, how are you doing? What's happening in New York? I am well. It is a busy month in New York. September sees schools reopen, increasingly people are back in offices, and the UN General Assembly will start in about a week which will have heads of state and dignitaries and business people all descend on the city. The Economist offices are about two blocks from the UN, so it always gets a little crazy around here, but I'm looking forward to it. Okay, let's get into this. Charlotte, you've written a big article in The Economist about the GOP, the Republican Party, and its changing relationship with big business. Why did you decide this was an interesting thing to look at? Well, as you said in your introduction, it's been a, a relationship that's been incredibly strong for decades now. And there are increasing signs that it's beginning to fray in ways that are both kind of superficial and make good headlines and in more substantive ways that suggest that the policies that big businesses have favored for a long time may no longer have the acceptance within the Republican Party that they once did. And so I thought that it would be useful to start by looking at states where Republicans control all levels of government and are free to enact their agenda. And here you see some policies that are explicitly antagonistic to certain companies. And one is West Virginia, which has passed a law barring the state government from doing business with banks and other firms that boycott the fossil fuel industry. It's not the only state doing that. Texas has done this as well. There are many other states that are considering moving forward. But I spoke with West Virginia's treasurer, Riley Moore, and asked him why he's taken this action. What we're looking to alleviate here is a conflict of interest where we have financial institutions that have prohibitive language uh, in their policy frameworks as it relates to lending to the fossil fuel industry. So we do business with a lot of these uh, banks that have put forward these types of policy frameworks and prohibitive language as it relates to lending to the fossil fuel industry. So the conflict of interest is are we going to hand over dollars to banks at the same time they're trying to diminish those dollars through the policies that they've articulated? And we contract out all of our services, like every other state treasury around the country, uh, with the private sector. And so to reduce and minimize to the extent we can that conflict of interest and protect our critical industries, which are so important for our tax revenue, which we reap hundreds of millions of dollars in coal, gas, and oil severance taxes, not to mention the income taxes associated with that as well. Uh, we are not gonna do business with uh, financial institutions that are boycotting our industries. There's a separate question, which is about West Virginian investors, right? And West Virginians who have money invested in their pension funds. And the firms that are involved here would say that they're not acting in an arbitrary political way. They argue, to play a devil's advocate with you, that they argue that these changes 
help protect investors from the very real risks of climate change and the very real risks of the transition, for instance, away from coal. So what do you say to that argument, that there are two different constituencies here, right? There's West Virginian industry, but separately there are West Virginian investors. Well, so you said protecting investors from climate change. So I guess to answer a question with a question, how do greenhouse gas emissions affect the financial outcomes or the uh, maximization of returns on a beneficiary's pension plan? Well, if a West Virginian has money invested in companies that are no longer competitive with declining costs of industry, so you have West Virginian coal that doesn't compete properly against whether it's gas or clean energy, they're at risk, right? So it's not about the risk from rising temperatures per se, though rising temperatures do pose a risk to some physical assets, but it's about the risk, the fall-on risk that they would feel financially. Yeah, and certainly I could understand that argument if we didn't have thermal coal, uh, particularly spot price coal right now, thermal coal going for nearly $300 a ton and metallurgical coal going for $500 a ton. This is historic highs as it relates to coal prices worldwide. And why is because we've had this coercive capitalism that's been going on diverting investment away from that type of an industry, and really all three of those industries, which is why we have high gas prices. It's why utility bills are rising here in the United States, because there is a short supply. And so, look, supply and demand, you all understand that. we got a short supply, we got a high demand, prices are going to rise. And so that is what's happening right now. So certainly, I don't think that it's necessarily a bad investment when you have some of these coal companies now that are functioning with zero debt and are pretty self-sustaining at this point as it relates to their finances. Um, Obviously, this is more politically driven as it relates to the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions and the transition to green energy, which all of these financial institutions happen to be heavily invested in. What do you think will happen next? So have you been in conversation with your colleagues in other states? What are they learning from your experience here? Oh, yes. We've had West Virginia put out our list. Texas just put out their list last month. Uh, Tennessee, Oklahoma, and Kentucky will be putting out their list likely next year. And I think you'll see as many as 12 states next year run this exact same or similar legislation around the country. So what does success look like here? What's the eventual outcome that you're seeking? All I'm seeking here is, you know, it was for banks to act like a bank, uh, let the free market remain free. I mean, I don't want any special treatment for coal or oil or gas. I don't want any of that. I mean, obviously, uh, green energy gets a lot of special treatment in this country and around the world as it relates to direct taxpayer payments to those companies and then also tax credits. We're not looking for any of that. So you talk about protecting the free market. Presumably, companies are are acting because they think this is in the interest of their customers. They don't have voters. They're not running for office, right? So this type of intervention would seem to be anathema to the Republican Party's traditional approach to big business, which is to uh, be more hands-off. What it seems to be is a form of state intervention in the pursuit of an idea of capitalism that Republicans want to advance whereas companies themselves are pursuing a different strategy. So tell me why that's wrong. Well, first of all, what I'd say is I'm not your traditional Republican in that sense. And secondly, what I would say is that 
the end of the day here, what I am is a market participant, as are these other states. I am not a market regulator. I am a state treasurer. I'm not the U.S. Treasury. I'm not the Fed. So what I'm doing is stating my preferences in the marketplace, just like any other contract that's put out for bid. And I can put any proviso that I want in that, just like anybody else in the free market can do. And if you can meet those uh, provisos and uh, requirements that we have to do business with us, then you're eligible to do business. Uh, Otherwise, you're not. And that's why I think this actually is a free market solution. At the end of the day, we're not the distortion in the marketplace. They are. Charlotte, that's a really interesting example from West Virginia. I just wanted to get your sense of whether you think the policy that West Virginia is pursuing is more a signaling policy or is it something that has real practical effects? I think it is both signaling. It is both clearly politically advantageous. It's interesting. ESG, which stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance Factors, these are a set of principles that increasingly guide the flow of capital based on factors such as whether companies are adequately preparing for the risks posed by climate change or whether they uh, might have poor governance structures in the way that they've designed their boards. There's an enormous number of things that fall into this category. But for Republicans, they've become a very simple proxy for the idea that investors are meddling in the broader shape of America's economy. I think this is a really interesting example to look at first because it helps frame the topic we're discussing, which is, in some ways, this is an example of Republicans being anti-big business, but in other ways, it's not because they are blacklisting financial firms or in banks, big banks, but they're also doing it in favor of big energy companies. And so I think this is a really evocative example where the lines are not necessarily clear cut. I agree with Charlotte, this is a culture war issue, ultimately, and ESG has entered the pantheon of diverse culture war issues that Republicans and Democrats are both taking up. But I don't think it's as straightforward to say that Republicans are anti-big business because they do have preferred sectors that they're extremely protective of and others that they like to go after. Yes, I think that's absolutely right, Alexandra, and that this time is interesting in part because there's not much intellectual consistency in some of what you see, right? It's that you have a pretty messy period in which Republicans and companies are testing out new ideas for the purpose of a company. And on the Republican side, what uh, sensible government regulation might look like, or indeed what Republican punitive regulation might look like. I mean, you can see these actions by Texas and West Virginia as being specifically punitive towards a company. And I know you've looked a lot at Disney and DeSantis and that spat. And when I was doing my interviews for this story, there were many executives who voiced to me that they felt like that was a real beginning of a new era in that they might be punished, companies might be punished by a Republican administration for policies with which that Republican administration disagrees. Alexandra, as Charlotte mentioned, you're our resident Florida expert here. That Disney, Florida, Ron DeSantis spat was chewed over so much at the time. What do you make of it in retrospect? 
I think it was a really fascinating and head-turning example of a Republican going after a high-profile business and ultimately making it a campaign issue. Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, is up for re-election this year. And media companies like Disney that are wading into the culture wars are great political fodder. So I actually do not believe that it was as much anti-business as it was anti-wokeism um, or perceived wokeism. And he kind of threw Disney under the bus. It'll be interesting to see the, you know, the way it was covered because when, just to give a bit of background for those who weren't following it so closely, this was a when Disney objected to the parental rights and education law or the don't say gay bill that was being proposed um, by the Florida legislature um, saying that it would censor classroom discussions about sexuality. Ron DeSantis went after Disney. Ultimately, Disney's share price fell and he revoked Disney's special privileges. It was covered as really a harmful thing for Disney. It'll be interesting to see whether that ultimately plays out and Disney really you know, struggles as a result of this or whether it was a way for DeSantis to score political points. But ultimately, there's not going to be that much of an impact on Disney in Florida. I think this is Republicans' aversion to companies taking stands on social issues um, and willing, to, therefore, to punish the companies. But I still do think that the Republican Party largely stands with business. Okay, we'll go back to when a Republican business-friendly policy was so popular, the Democrats adopted it in a moment. First, the usual reminder, it's past Labor Day, so the countdown to the midterms is officially on, which means there's never been a finer time to subscribe to The Economist if you don't already. This week sees the launch of our election forecast model, which is really interesting. If you want to play around with that, go and find it on economist.com. That was built by Dan Rosenhack and Elliot Morris, who was on checks recently. Alexandra and Charlotte, aside from playing with the election forecasting model, what have you particularly enjoyed from the past week's coverage? I'm going to be crass and plug my own story. I'm not going to say that I enjoyed reading it, but I have an essay in this week's issue that is about oil and climate change in Alaska, and I spent a long time reporting it, and I hope you enjoy reading it. I've read that essay already. I really enjoyed it, and I learned a ton of stuff from it, including the fact that a caribou can lose two litres of blood from mosquitoes over the course of the summer, which is really an awful lot. Was it litres or pints, Charlotte? It's litres, and I'm glad I'm giving you this news you can use. <laughs> um, and we're going to make use of Charlotte's very uncomfortable camping trip in Alaska for a podcast later in the year. Economist.com slash USPod is the link to subscribe. It's in the notes for this episode. Ladies and gentlemen, the President and Vice President of the United States. In early December 1993, in the auditorium of the Commerce Department in downtown DC, Bill Clinton and Al Gore took to a blue carpeted stage. It was an appropriate setting. The large high ceilinged room and its Doric columns, filled with an audience of luminaries, befitted the grandness of the occasion. The Commerce Department, an apt place to sign into law, a landmark trade deal. In a few moments, I will sign the North American Free Trade Act into law. NAFTA will tear down trade barriers between our three nations. NAFTA was intended to boost trade between the US, Canada and Mexico by removing almost all tariffs and restrictions, and in doing so, reinvigorate America's economy. 
Now we must recognize that the only way for a wealthy nation to grow richer is to export. It was one of Clinton's big victories in his first year as president. He had overseen the treaty's tricky passage through Congress, but it was really a Republican idea. Good evening. I'm here tonight to announce my intention to seek the Republican nomination for President of the United States. Ronald Reagan announced his run in November 1979 with a 24-minute address filmed in his suite at the New York Hilton. On the foreign front, the decade... Around 15 minutes in, he got up from his desk to stand next to a globe, turned so that the North American continent was facing the camera. And so a developing closeness among Canada, Mexico and the United States, a North American accord would permit achievement of that potential in each country. Reagan took a step towards this vision with the Trade and Tariff Act of 1984 and signed a free trade agreement with Canada. But it was his successor, George Bush, who made Reagan's North American Accord a reality when he negotiated and in 1992 signed the NAFTA Treaty with his Mexican and Canadian counterparts. Bill Clinton would, a year later, sign it into law. Arguments for globalization had proven so convincing that even after Republicans lost power in 1992, Clinton and other center-left Democrats embraced new trade deals such as NAFTA. These gave American companies access to new export markets and cheaper pools of foreign labor. But not everyone was a fan. You can move your factory south of the border, pay a dollar an hour for labor, hire a young 25... Let's assume you've been in business for a long time, you've got a mature workforce. Speaking at a 1992 presidential debate, independent candidate Ross Perot explained his reservations about NAFTA. Pay a dollar an hour for your labor, have no health care, that's the most expensive single element in making a car, have no environmental controls, no pollution controls, and no retirement, and you don't care about anything but making money, there will be a giant sucking sound going south. It's an argument that's oddly prescient. From 1993, when NAFTA was signed, to 2016, when Trump was elected, the number of American manufacturing jobs fell by 29%. Some of these were lost to technology that improved productivity and made America richer. But some were lost to cheaper foreign labor. Trade deals, critics said, were to blame. During his first campaign, Trump blasted Bill Clinton's trade agreement with China and called NAFTA the worst trade deal maybe ever signed anywhere. Trade deals became so politically toxic that Hillary Clinton abandoned her support for the Trans-Pacific Partnership, a deal she had helped champion as Barack Obama's Secretary of State. For free marketeers, it was a sad moment. It also closed a neat loop. A Democrat, whose husband had mimicked Republicans' embrace of free trade deals, now felt compelled, under Republican pressure, to shun them. Alexandra, there's long been a strain within the Republican Party of folks who have romanticized the little guy, been suspicious of Wall Street, suspicious of big business. But it was kept in check, as Charlotte said, for a very long time. And I suppose one of the things that's new is that that strain in the party is just so much stronger and, and may even have the upper hand now. Although one thing that I would say is that we are seeing similar rhetoric in the Republican Party today as we saw after the financial crisis uh, by members of the Tea Party. We saw a hugely anti-big business 
agenda and a lot of concern about the debt ceiling and a portrayal of Democrats, interestingly, as way too cozy with big business um, and the elites of Wall Street banks. And so when I hear people like Josh Hawley and J.D. Vance, the Senate Ohio candidate, um, I, I really think about some of the rhetoric um, we heard from people like Ted Cruz 10 years ago. It seems eerily similar. Um, and I think a lot of that, of public anger, not just about jobs disappearing in America, but also about Wall Street not having had its comeuppance after the financial crisis and the perceived invincibility of big business and lack of accountability of banks continues to, to drive passions in America. And I think that the Republican candidates are responding to that anger in, among their base. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. And I think also that it's worth thinking about what has continued to change within the Republican Party since 2010. And you think about Citizens United, which was the Supreme Court decision that lots of Democrats were worried about because they thought it would lead to a surge in companies' political spending. Actually, what happened instead is not that companies became more powerful within the Republican Party, and they didn't help elect a whole new raft of of pro-business Republicans. But what you had instead was the rise of really, really big individual donors over the past decade. Think of the Sheldon Adelsons of the world, maybe Peter Thiel's, and the rise of small donors, actually. And the way that both groups give their money is that they're more likely to give to ideological candidates than our businesses, which in general back a bit more of a pragmatic slate of politicians. And what's happened in the past decade in particular is that you have Republicans have a constituency that has shifted. You've had elites and college-educated voters absolutely stampede towards the Democratic Party, and you have those without college degrees who are increasingly turning towards Republicans. And that poses a problem for companies, right? Many of companies' employees are there those elites who prefer democratic social policies. And so the result of this is you have some angst within the Republican Party that is not just talk. I mean, clearly there was a lot of um, political reason after the financial crisis to make it seem within the Republican Party that they were defending the interests of Main Street while it, rather than Wall Street. But you do also have a fundamental shift within the Republican Party's constituency that I think is going to be more lasting. All right, we'll be back in a moment to hear from one of the theorists behind the new Republican relationship with corporate America. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Charlotte, you spoke to lots of people for the story you wrote recently, and you particularly thought that we should hear from Oren Cass. Why is Oren Cass particularly interesting on this subject, do you think? 
This kind of goes to our earlier discussion, which is whether there will be substantive changes within the Republican Party. And I absolutely agree with Alexandra that there's no grand Republican strategy. This is kind of a fight that's happening within the party about what economic policies different candidates might advance. And Orrin Cass is an intellectual leader within the party who's helping to provide some of the framework for that debate. There are a few different think tanks that have come up in recent years that are advancing different economic ideas within the conservative movement. So I thought we should hear from one of them. I asked him to lay out the foundations of his thinking on this. Well, corporations need constraints placed on them so that the opportunities that are going to be profitable are also ones that are productive. So trade and globalization is a great example of this. It needs to be more attractive to employ American workers and to make investments in America as opposed to going and doing that overseas. And so free trade uh, is not necessarily the right policy. You need policies that ensure that production is happening in America. Uh, and then I think the same thing goes for, for Wall Street and recognizing that, you know, a well-functioning financial system that that brings capital to its best uses is incredibly important. Uh, a Wall Street that's focused on speculation and fueling asset bubbles and, and creating derivatives doesn't do that. In fact, what we've seen in, in recent decades is exactly the opposite, that Wall Street is sucking a lot of capital out of the real economy uh, and, and moving it into unproductive uses. So the, the key in all of these respects is to recognize that you actually need rules in place if the things that are going to be uh, good for profits are also going to be things that are good for Americans. One of the interesting things in the past few years is if you've seen think tanks such as yours, American Compass, rise up to start providing real intellectual heft to this transition. So it's not there's not a vague populism. This is grounded in real policy. I'm wondering what you observe as the main evidence that some of the ideas that you describe are being adopted by politicians on the right, because clearly there's been a rhetorical shift, right, that's been in place now for several years since at least the, the beginning of the Trump campaign. But how is this making a transition from rhetoric into policy within the Republican Party? Well, I think you see it at the end of the day in the positions that politicians adopt on substantive issues and then the, the legislation that they write. And vote for. And so, especially this year, I think we've seen a real tangible shift. Uh, you know, Senator Marco Rubio and, and Congressman Jim Banks introduced a bill that, that among other things, contemplated putting workers on boards of directors. Uh, that's obviously not something you ever would have heard from Republicans in the past. And, and it got, I believe, 14 uh, Republican co-sponsors in the House. Uh, you know, you see it in the CHIPS Act, which was the, I think, first real effort at industrial policy to support the domestic semiconductor industry, uh, where you had a, a number, certainly more than a dozen uh, Republican senators and then Republican House members as well, uh, voting for for that approach to really making sure that we have strong uh, domestic production of, of critical technologies. And so... Uh, you know, I think that's the tip of the iceberg. There's there's certainly a lot more to come, but but that's where you start to see the shift, not just in rhetoric, but in fact, in folks putting their money where their mouth is. The issues that have been raised in our conversation so far are fascinating in, in some ways because they suggest that Republicans are increasingly interested in weighing in on issues that previously have been confined 
not completely, but largely to the Democrats. And so I'm wondering whether you see the seeds of a consensus here where there's a new generation of politicians in Washington who embrace what is a fundamentally different idea of what capitalism is. We can debate the definition of capitalism, but it clearly is not the explicitly free market pro-trade capitalism that ruled um, from the 80s through the 90s to the early 2000s, right? So do you think that that is something that is shared across the aisle? Do you see momentum here where there's actually quite a lot of agreement between Republicans and Democrats on there being increased appetite for state intervention in a number of areas? There are certainly elements of an opportunity for consensus. If you look on an issue like industrial policy, where something like the CHIPS Act did have bipartisan support, uh, if you look at attitudes toward China, I think we're likely to see a continued strengthening uh, in, in both parties on quite harsh measures toward decoupling our economy from China, restricting financial flows, restricting trade, and so forth. Um, I think where you start to run into real obstacles with building that kind of consensus is uh, where particularly the left of center has allowed a, a very, frankly, radically progressive social view to infect how they think about economic questions. And so, you know, immigration is a classic example where you now have a, a left of center that, you know, certainly through the the labor movement and so forth, historically would have been very skeptical of of giving corporations sort of unfettered access to an unlimited supply of, of low-wage labor. Um, but now for reasons that have nothing to do with economics, they're essentially firmly committed to no enforcement of immigration law at all. Um, so I, I think that's one sort of obstacle that that's in play. And, and then I think the other one is that as corporations and as Wall Street um, become more aligned with the left on on cultural issues, they are going to start to exert a lot of the same sort of financial influence on the left of center that that they've historically exerted on the right of center. And I think you see that already where, you know, the Biden administration is is very excited to talk about how they're the most pro-labor uh, administration and and they're there for workers and so forth. If you look at the actual major achievements of the Biden administration this year, they were pouring hundreds of billions of dollars into climate change subsidies and forgiving hundreds of billions of dollars of student loans. So Charlotte, Oren Cass is a particularly thoughtful exponent of this kind of thinking within the conservative movement. You know, he's not the kind of populist, nationalist, you know, anti-woke guy. But listening to him there made me wonder whether Republicans have kind of lost the economic argument, right? I mean, if you think back at the 80s and 90s, the Republican Reaganite consensus on the economy was so incredibly strong that Democrats seemed to be in permanent retreat. And now you have, you know, prominent folks like him arguing in favor of industrial policy and all sorts of things which I've you know, tended to associate with the Democratic Party. Yeah, I think that one of the big things that's driven that is the way that the Republican Party thinks about China. Obviously, Donald Trump made this a central part of his presidency. But there, it, it's a combination of thinking about uh, Amer 
protecting American workers that dovetails actually with a conception of thinking about American strength in the world um, and in opposition to China, which interestingly, part of America being supportive of China entering the WTO was this idea that American economic values were going to be spread into China. And what I find kind of fascinating is that more than 20 years later, some Chinese economic ideals are spreading to America because America feels like it needs to adopt them to compete. And that obviously is a grand overstatement, but you see seeds of this, right, in support for different state interventions in the economy, most notably with this CHIPS bill this summer, which included industrial policy for a strategic industry that America really wanted to advance explicitly to help compete against China. People called it the China bill, right? But there are these big ideas, um, trade, industrial policy, competition, they were fixed for so long. And so now you see trade, industrial policy, competition, all these ideas are in flux. I don't want to argue that they're settled, but they have all of a sudden become areas of active debate in a way that they just were not pretty recently. I mean, you have Tom Cotton of Arkansas at a speech at the Reagan Presidential Library in March calling for Americans to, quote unquote, reject the ideology of globalism, which included uh, curbing immigration, banning American investment in strategic Chinese industries, suggesting that Congress punish offshoring to China. J.D. Vance wants to raise taxes on companies that move jobs abroad. You have Marco Rubio, who's been a pretty aggressive proponent of industrial policy, particularly in mining and thinking about critical minerals as a way to compete against China. Josh Hawley uh, has a variety of ideas to this effect. So I think it's a pretty fascinating time within the party. And I think there's some people who might see this trend of Republicans becoming more willing to defy consensus or historically Republican policies as a potential light of unity with Democrats in Washington. Alexandra, there's a certain amount of overlap here with what we were talking about last week in terms of the way that federal politics has infected everything and everything seems to have become political in America. How much of a pain is it for companies operating in America to find themselves in the crosshairs of of both parties to some extent for entirely different reasons? I think it's a huge and enormous headache and it's only going to become more severe. I think the West Virginia example and also Texas doing something very similar by punishing ESG companies that are supposedly boycotting oil and gas firms um, shows how difficult it is for companies to navigate today in a in a country where there are red states that have certain perspectives on how companies should operate, and then blue states that are advancing their own agenda and encouraging companies to be to do more when it comes to ESG investing, like California and New York. So you, for companies, you know they they'll feel like they're on the side of the angel in one state and then realize that they're damned in the other. And so I think that's only going to increase. Charlotte, what we've been talking about so far is mainly to do with long-term changes in the Republican Party's economic philosophy. How much does any of this matter for the midterms? I actually don't think it matters that much for the midterms. Um, I think that the midterms will be decided largely on other issues, though, there'll be some of the signaling that occurs. I think what's really interesting, though, is that there used to be a time when companies would be rooting and supporting candidates to try to 
uh, to try to have Republican-controlled Congress, that that was the best possible outcome for American business. And now you have the Chamber of Commerce that's supporting some Republicans, but also backing some moderate Democrats um, in different House races and Senate races. And some of the executives that I spoke with said that what they uh, really are most comfortable with at this point in Washington is a stalemate, because that feels safer. So no longer is Republican-controlled Congress necessarily something that companies view as a good thing, that um, just stasis, inertia, in many ways, serves them better. So that's one thing I think is interesting. And then the other is that there's going to be an evolution that happens in the next few years, depending on the outcome of the midterms, and then also, of course, on the outcome of the next presidential election. And this fight that we've described with Alexandra and with you is something that's playing out Right now, it's not settled. There are these different ideas that are being brought forth within the Republican Party. It's not really clear what the broader you know, GOP stands for anymore. The policy platform is very nebulous at this stage. So I'm really inter- interested to see both the outcomes of these elections and then how some of these ideas advance or not. You know, Is there going to be a real transition in a more lasting way that leads to policies that really affect American companies in the long term? that kind of changes what the past 30 years has been the accepted version of American capitalism. I think that broad question of how American businesses will evolve depends in large part on these fights that are happening, these questions that are being raised right now within the GOP. Right. Well, let's leave that here for now, though I suspect this is a theme we'll be returning to. Alexandra, now is the moment you've been waiting for. It's quiz time. The Obamas returned to their old home this week for the official unveiling of their White House portraits. The ceremony is usually hosted by a president's successor, but Donald Trump never scheduled one for the 44th president. So, here follows a couple of questions on White House presidential portraits. Question one. The portrait of which president is unique in that it depicts him looking down and with his arms folded? Oh, I can picture that portrait. It's some old white dude, (laughs) and I don't remember which one, but I can picture that one. Who is it? Charlotte, you really narrowed it down. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) No, but I I know... Oh, oh, JFK. It's JFK looking down. It is indeed JFK looking down. And he wasn't old. He was not old, so I was kind of wrong, actually. Yes, you're wrong on... You lose points for the old bit. His portrait was painted seven years after his assassination, and Jackie Kennedy reportedly didn't want a portrait showing JFK's full face, so he was depicted looking down. Well done, Charlotte. That's a point. Alexandra, you've got to be quicker on the button. Question two. Which president thought his original portrayal wasn't macho enough and commissioned John Singer Sargent to paint a new one? Hmm. It's the turn-of-the-century guy. Um... Who cared a lot about looking macho. I mean, I guess they all yeah, did. Yeah, I mean, Teddy Roosevelt? Yeah, I would have guessed Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt is the right answer there. Ooh, I would have thought John Singer Sargent was a curious choice to paint a more macho portrait, given the, you know, as far as I could say. I think it's because he was just painting, he was painting every robber baron and their wives. It's like having the Annie Leibovitz of 1906. I guess that's right. I, I mainly think of him as... Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners or odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. 
so you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Painting children and ladies carrying parasols, but you're right, there were some rubber barons too. LBJ, Richard Nixon, and Ronald Reagan also rejected the first versions of their official White House portraits. Alexandra, you've been stunned into silence by Charlotte's quiz performance, as as am I. <laughs> Tremendous respect for her knowledge. <laughs> oh yeah, this is really overstating it, but um, I'll 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 bask in the glow. <laughs> well, thank you, Charlotte, and thank you, Alexandra. Thank you, thank you, John. Safe travels. Thank you very much. This episode was produced by Harriet Noble and Amika Shortino-Nolan. Our sound engineer is Nico Rofast. If you like the podcast, then please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. We also have a checks and balance newsletter, and you can sign up for that at economist.com newsletters, should you wish to do so. You can also get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. We really enjoy those, so keep them coming, please. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week. <laughs>